All right, this is the uh, third one of these we've recorded in uh, one day. So here's hoping that we uh, either do or don't get super loopy doing this one because it is a doozy. Whichever you would prefer from us, uh, I, I hope we do. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a crucial hinge point. Hi, and welcome to Hell of Presidents. This is episode 10, The Nude Eels. On April 12, 1945, 25 days before Germany's surrender ended World War II in Europe, Franklin Delano Roosevelt was sitting for a portrait at his retreat in Warm Springs, Georgia, when he suddenly declared he had a massive headache and slumped over unconscious. He would die just hours later of a cerebral hemorrhage at age 63. Roosevelt, this titanic figure of the 30s and 40s, the only president to be elected more than two terms, in fact, having just been sworn in for his fourth term as president, had led a massive reworking of the American economy and society and led the country successfully into and through another massive global conflict. And now, for the seventh time in American history, a vice president is ascending to the office due to his president's death. This incredible project of reshaping the country at the critical moment at the end of a war now falls into the lap of Harry S. Truman. Oh, boy. Just how could it be? (laughs) How do we get Harry Truman there instead of beautiful boy Henry Wallace, our progressive hero? The the, the logical next step uh, in... The New Deal, if, if you imagine it as a progressive movement within capitalism to sort of socially redeem it, the next step after uh, FDR was truly Henry Wallace, his pure-hearted, uh, Puritan, committed, progressive vice president uh, for his third term, uh, who was committed to uh, creating a post-war world that was a collaboration with the uh, Soviet Union rather than a competition with the Soviet Union and was serious about doing it. Uh, he was knocked off the ballot uh, in 1944 at the insistence of party bosses and replaced with uh, Missouri Senator Harry S. Truman, a, a machine cog in one of those urban uh, political uh, machines we've talked about. So by FDR's fourth term, the Democratic Party had become the natural dominant ruling party of the United States, uh, meaning that it encompassed basically the entire state and most interests in it. Uh, it was supported at the base by working class people generally across the country, but, only, but as part of a broad coalition that encompassed international capital, the urban machines of the North and West, uh, the bourbon machines of the White South, the liberal professional classes – and communist sympathizers among the government and labor union bureaucracy. Uh, And FDR was able to subsume all of these conflicts uh, among the coalition in his own person, which through the course of of his presidency had become uh, supernatural. Uh, Thanks to fireside chats, mass media, and the traumas of the war, FDR by the end of the war was this figure who was able to uh, embody all of the contradictions of the general... uh, New Deal Coalition, if you want to call it that. Uh, And while he was doing that, uh, the office of vice president sort of generally went to whichever part of that coalition was in ascendancy. Mm -hmm. So when FDR was uh, nominated uh, as a progressive uh, and as someone who was going to go beyond the progressive movement uh, in 1932, uh, 
the reactionary part of the party insisted on the vice presidency of Speaker of the House, John Cactus Jack Nance <laughs> Gartner, uh, who was a Texas congressman, <laughs> Speaker of the House, as I said, uh, and a, a pure bourbon Democrat, as you're going to see. Uh, which was a sop to a huge part of the constituency of the Democratic Party, the, the bourbon machine of the South. Uh, and he spent two miserable terms as uh, FDR's vice president. He is the one who famously said that the vice presidency ain't worth a bucket of warm spit or <laughs> piss, however you want to. There's conflicts, conflicts about what he said, but it's something gross in a, in a, in a bucket. That's what being vice president is. Because it really is. If you are outside of like the actual uh, machines of influence of, of the party uh, and the administration, and that's up to the president, the, pre- the vice presidency is genuinely powerless. Uh, and he was a genuinely vol- powerless vice president, but he hung on with the assumption that FDR, following tradition, mm-hmm. would step down after his second term, and mm-hmm. he then could then run for president as the two-term vice president, which was becoming an established principle. Uh, In the 19th century, it wasn't always the case that the vice president was the assumed next candidate, but by the 20th century, it had become understood that that, that's a stepping stone. Uh, But then uh, FDR refused to uh, step down because he didn't see a worthy successor. (laughs) He looked around him and nobody thought, he thought, he didn't think anybody had the juice to hold off the bourbons uh, unless it was him because he'd been, he just moved people through the Great Depression. He was the voice of, of this new government that was had a new intervention in human affairs. He had this power. This he's this he's embodying progress. Right. So he is able to brush aside the Garner uh, insurgency, which means that there's room on the ticket, and the ascendant progressive wing that defeated the Garnerites at the convention puts one of their own, uh, Henry Wallace, in there, and Henry Wallace gets one term. Uh, after uh, being VP, this was after being the Interior Secretary who helped uh, institute the current regime of agricultural subsidies that saved the the Dust Bowl and the American mm-hmm. farmer in the 30s. Uh, and he was as FDR got sicker because he was not doing well by that by the second half of that third term. Uh, everyone understood that the vice presidency was a meaningful position, and uh, FDR, without any confidence in anyone other than himself with him having embodied this entire project in his own person is essentially is forced to to run again uh, to keep the fractious coalition together uh and then the people who put that in place this time the ones he owes it to are the 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 reactionary bourbons who have now coalesced in opposition to the the progressives who until that point had ruled the show uh and they put on the ticket at their insistence uh missouri senator Harry S. Truman, a product of the Pendergrass, Kansas City uh, political machine, a haberdasher, the last president we have to not have graduated from college, right. is, thru- is made the vice president. He had made a name for himself in the Senate as uh, a, uh, a hard-charging uh, advocate for the public good uh, in pursuing war profiteers. He was in charge of a committee that, that he, like, he basically got to bring defense contractors to dc and on the radio just yell, yell at them. them we'll get into all this and, and that all that made him a darling yeah but it was um and, but he was the part of the party that did not answer to the working class did mm-hmm. not answer even to the labor movement that answered to the political machines and the bourbon and the, the bourbons and uh and international and big finance that is at the top of both parties it's that coalition uh that came together to put Truman on the on the uh, ticket, and then when 
FDR dies and uh, he's replaced by Truman, uh, it essentially guarantees uh, that the post-war American posture will be one of total bellicosity to the Soviet Union, uh, total war for resources on behalf of a, of a capitalist world order headquartered in D.C. and New York, and that the executive branch is no longer answerable in any way to anything we'd want to call working class or popular politics. So this episode, we will be covering the New Deal, the now nearly mythological in scope set of programs to save America from the Great Depression and reorganize Americans' essential understanding of the relationship to government. It's another point where an extraordinary set of circumstances meets an individual with an extraordinary ability to adapt to them. We'll see a reorganization of the Democratic and Republican Party coalitions, the heroic rise of a wave of labor power, the unifying national purpose and production to fight our one good war. And in the end, we'll see how quickly these things can start to unravel from one president to his successor. But first, we start with the big man in the little chair. Franklin Delano Roosevelt was born January 30th, 1882, in the quaint upstate hamlet of Hyde Park, New York. The Roosevelts and Delanos were both wealthy old-line New England families with lineages of merchants and businessmen stretching back to the 17th century. I think it's fairly well known that FDR's parents were cousins, but, you know, like six cousins. At, at that point, you know, it, it's marginal in consequence. Yeah, six it, cousins, everybody's six mi- cousins with someone. Minimal mutations. Yes. Franklin was fifth cousins with Teddy and would end up marrying Eleanor Roosevelt, who was also his fifth cousin, as well as Teddy Roosevelt's niece. Keeping it in the family. All of which I bring up just to point out that these guys were all well-insulated, upper-crust people with mating and marriage habits, at least gesturing towards European-style uh, noble inbreeding. They were basically like the Habsburgs of upstate New York. <laughs> yeah, they, they called them the Habsburgs of the Hudson. Yeah. <laughs> Franklin was largely homeschooled in his youth and took frequent trips to Europe as a child. He was then sent to Groton and on to Harvard, where he was a mediocre student but did run the Harvard Crimson for a while. While at Harvard, Franklin's father passed away, and one year later, his cousin Teddy became president. So you can kind of imagine what that might do to one's sense of male role models. Mm. Franklin married Eleanor Roosevelt on March 17th, 1905. Didn't have to change her name. <laughs> Didn't have to change her name. Always, always the kind of thing you're looking for. It saves space on, it, on the, know, the invitations. Sa- it saves a trip to the courthouse. It's great. Yeah. The couple had five children over the next decade. Their relationship would become increasingly strained by Franklin's multiple and extended affairs. Another horny boy. Yes. In the Harding Mall. Yes. While some of these affairs are more historically substantiated than others, Eleanor did find love letters from FDR to her secretary, mm. Lucy Mercer, in 1918. Yes, there's a there's a Bill Murray movie about all of that. Is this the one where he gets a handjob? Yes, by, okay. by his cousin, I believe. Thereafter, Eleanor and Franklin's relationship would become increasingly estranged as Eleanor began to focus more on her public life. After graduating Harvard, FDR studied law at Columbia, and after passing the bar in 1907, took a job at a law firm where he specialized in admiralty law. Just an interesting early nautical fixation like his cousin Teddy. It's in the blood. Yes. Those Dutchmen, they love the seas. They do love the seas. That's where their fortunes were found. Franklin soon turned to politics and inheriting his father's affiliation with the Democrats, managed an upset victory in his strongly Republican district in a New York State Senate election in 1910. 
In the state Senate, he became known as an opponent to Tammany Hall bosses and a supporter of laborers and farmers. Franklin also became a supporter of Wilson over his own cousin Teddy in the 1912 presidential election, support that would be borne out well as Wilson became the first Democratic president elected in 20 years. For support, Franklin followed the footsteps again of his cousin Teddy and was appointed Assistant Secretary of the Navy, a position he took to with great enthusiasm. Roosevelt worked to modernize the Navy, institute merit-based promotions, negotiate with the civilian naval employees and their unions, and develop management of government logistics. He took a brief break to run for Senate in New York in 1914, but failing to secure Wilson's support, got owned by the Tammanys in the primary, who then got owned by the Republicans in the general. But... World War I starts up and FDR starts helping run a wartime Navy, which was expanding rapidly. And now there are like submarines and dreadnoughts and shit. Imagine what a like 1914 car looks like. Yeah. Now imagine being in a 1914 submarine. Oh my God. It's, it's amazing that those guys went down there. No, thank you. Yes. I, I would. Fucking I diesel engines. Yes. Diesel engine submarine. Jesus Christ. Like a fucking, you starting a lawnmower. Yeah. A tiny pressurized can full of diesel oil. <laughs> oh boy. The, the past is really not a good place to hang oh, out. Oh, totally, March. dude. Yeah, you know, it was. It was basically people on, volunteered for that shit. It was Jesus basically Christ. unlivable any time in the past. Before I would say conservatively, 1955. Yeah, absolutely. Franklin campaigns for and receives the 1920 Democratic vice presidential nomination, running as a moderate Wilsonite pro League of Nations man, balancing the more conservative James M. Cox ticket. You should remember how this goes from last week's episode. We're entering the era of owned Democrats. And the Cox-Roosevelt ticket gets absolutely creamed by the increasingly isolationist Republicans. FDR returns to practice law in New York and planned his next move. While on vacation on his family's home on the Campobello Island, which seems like a nice place. It's basically right up over the Canadian border from the easternmost part of the U.S. and Maine. Place I would like to visit. Franklin fell ill with paralytic conditions. As he recovered, he became permanently paralyzed from the waist down. Roosevelt was determined to remain in public life. He meticulously avoided using his wheelchair in public, learned to walk short distances using leg braces and a cane. Roosevelt would take careful measures to avoid being photographed in a wheelchair and to always appear publicly supporting himself or standing supported by his aides or sons. But it was generally publicly known that FDR was disabled. As a 1931 Liberty Magazine article stated with era-appropriate tactfulness, quote, it is an amazing possibility the next president of the United States may be a cripple. <gasps> uh, yeah, I think that's one of those things that people thought, feel now that it was like hidden from the yeah, public. Yeah, people pretty much knew. They just didn't harp on it all yeah, you just It was considered impolite. Yeah, there were certain talk things you it. didn't talk about publicly. Even if it's like literally the president. Yeah, and look at him like hobbling over there in those leg braces yeah like fucking uh like a like a giant marionette <laughs> so fdr spends the next several years attempting to recover and stay relevant in democratic politics he began spending more and more time in georgia taking advantage of the therapeutic hot springs and warm springs and buying a resort there and eventually building his little white house there he publicly endorsed al smith's successful 1922 run for new york governor helping mend some tammany ties Roosevelt gave nominating speeches for Smith at both the 1924 and 1928 Democratic conventions, and in return for the support, Smith advanced Roosevelt for the Democratic nomination of New York governor in 1928. So there you see the devil's bargain between the machine hacks and the progressive uh, block. 
mm-hmm. where Roosevelt comes to Smith and and, and as is the uh, is the resolution of of Smith into uh, someone who can appeal to both. In a year of a Republican presidential landslide, FDR won governor of New York by a slim margin. As Governor Franklin bucked the Hoover administration by pushing aggressive policies to address the seriousness of the Depression, including unemployment insurance, pensions, and establishing the Temporary Emergency Relief Administration. And by 1932, he was a frontrunner for the Democratic nomination. That's where you see the, the uh, actual progressive value of state government, which is often a regressive force historically. Mm-hmm. But there is a progressive current, and it's representative of the fact that a lot of the times you'll have a situation where there is too much resistance at the highest corridors of power to change to allow a federal response. But smaller concentrations at state levels can lead to a progressive expansion and mm-hmm. then pushing of the boundaries uh, because the stakes are lower, basically. And, uh, and Al Smith and then FDR represented that, that they could be a laboratory for an alternative to uh, Hoover politics and the conventional understanding of the government's role in the economy. They could distribute. They could. Uh, they could experiment. It really is the only place where the the laboratory of democracy thing is actually true. Is in moments where the the, the federal government is just stuck and cannot address really rising issues. Uh, but only in places where something like a democratic machine exists mm-hmm. that can be that can efficiently channel like uh, working class discontent. With brief opposition from Al Smith, FDR was nominated for president on the fourth ballot by the Democrats in Chicago in 1932. In his nomination speech, and he was the first candidate to accept his nomination in person uh, and on the radio, uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt pledged himself and the party to a new deal for the American people. I pledge myself to a new deal for the American people. Give me your help not to win votes alone, but to win in this crusade to restore America to its own people. A demand for new financial regulations, relief for farmers, public works programs, unemployment assistance, and other reforms. With the crisis of the Depression dissolving previous bonds, uh, Roosevelt was able to consolidate a wild array of forces. The Democrats' conservative wing, Southern farmers, wets and dries, urban Catholics, even liberal Republicans like Fightin' Bob LaFollette endorsed him. And in 1932, FDR won 42 states and 57% of the popular vote. The first Democrat since goddamn Franklin Pierce in 1852 to win an outright majority of both popular and elected votes. Goddamn. And Al Smith was very bitter about this. Because he did really feel like if anyone was going to cash in personally on the new reform agenda of the Democratic Party that emerged out of the New York machine and the and the labor discontent of the of the the twenties of the thirties, it should be him because he was the first one to do it. He's the one who took the lumps. He's the one who uh, had who had to run and see the the burning cross out the window <laughs> of his train. And then here's this fancy pants from upstate swooping in and grabbing a grail out of the hand. You can see why the Irish are a very uh, yes. resentful group in America because Al Smith ended up becoming incredibly bitter about uh, his uh, his denial of the nomination in 32 and became a prominent critic of the New Deal. And he was a paid uh, writer on behalf of right-wing opposition to the New Deal, uh, even though the New Deal was just a continuation of what he had done in New York, and it was all based on spite. <laughs> uh, so FDR is able to 
swoop in there at the last minute and right. steal this new burgeoning coalition from Al Smith because the Great Depression had fully and finally and fatally delegitimized the post-Civil War Republican vision of limited government. Mm-hmm. Hoover, trapped by the ideology and the party imperatives, could only offer meager response to all the misery, just as presidents had done during previous economic crises in the 19th century. By the 30s, the U.S. was populous enough, working class was organized enough, and mass culture had developed enough to allow for the other major party to challenge for power on the basis of a radical change in relationship between government and citizens. This mass culture allowed the the uh, uncollected rage of the uh, miserable American working class to be channeled through the party machinery mm-hmm. uh, that pre- already existed within the Democratic Party. And so these machines essentially were overcome by the real feeling of alienation uh, and overcame to a great degree the imperative towards self-preservation that had dominated uh, the old par- patronage machine. Uh, and the New Deal for the American people being proposed by this by far-sighted politicians like Roosevelt who were not committed to anything mm-hmm. that is the key to understanding Roosevelt he was to the manner born and he was an example of how noblesse oblige is supposed to work Roosevelt was so secure of himself in his position of power within the American experiment that he felt that there could be a radical negotiation of terms of capital mm-hmm. because of his elevated position the grubby moneylenders on the street were way more anxious about it, uh, way more terrified of their own failure, and so were much gr- uh, greedier and more hostile. And that's where you get the germ of the New Deal counter, or uh, the post-New Deal counterculture uh, on the right. And so he could basically promise everything to everybody. Mm-hmm. He could say, "Let's try it." He could say, "Let's do it a try." And so you have the ability for him to articulate a radical change of direction. And then everyone hearing that through mass media, through the campaigns, through the radio, mm-hmm. uh, Happy Days of Here Again was the, was the campaign theme song. And that organized the entirety of working class desire to one point. Even though it wasn't organized yet, it was being organized by labor unions and the Communist Party, but it was still in a protean form. But it had a new North Star. Yes. And it was this Democratic Party and this new deal that from his lofty perch in Hyde Park, FDR felt like he could offer. And so the hopes and dreams of the working class filter through the Democratic Party's machinery to dominate first the Democratic Party and then the entire electorate. Roosevelt spent the time between election and inauguration selecting his cabinet, which was known as the Brain Trust. I believe that's the origin of that term. And advisors and narrowly dodging an assassination attempt, which is something I feel like gets lost to history. Yeah, Uh, that's uh, that's what happens in... um a man of the high castle. It starts with the Zangara assassination being successful. So Italian immigrant Giuseppe Zangara shot at Roosevelt during a speech in Miami, uh, missing the president-elect, but hitting and fatally wounding Chicago mayor Anton Chermak. Zangara later said, quote, I kill kings and presidents first and next all capitalists. Not much else to say there. Uh, it's kind of a so that happened moment. It, it is also a reminder of the contingency of history. Like yeah. we, we think of these figures as titanically important and they are in the accumulation of these happenstances like what does happen if there's no fdr what if cactus jack garner has to reside over a government with the imperative to carry out a fucking significant social reform in a very short period of time or risk genuine social conflict 
And a figure like Nick Garner dedicated to resisting that at all costs. Friction accumulating in the system insufficient for it to contain and a real outbreak of civic conflict. But this is the beauty of the system. It selects for its own reconstruction. It ex- it, 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 ex- uh, it, it, to a certain point anyway, it selects for its own self-preservation. And the figure of FDR emerges to synthesize these contradictions. FDR took office at the dismal nadir of the Great Depression. Industrial production had cratered. Unemployment was at record highs. Farmers were in crisis as prices had completely collapsed. Banks were closing across the country and millions were unemployed. Roosevelt and the 73rd Congress began a flurry of activity immediately upon his ascension that set the standard for the first 100 days of presidential activity. So Matt, let's fucking go. The New Deal. There's an eagle blue in the White House, too, on the shoulder of our president there. With a lusty call telling one and all. It was basically an episode of Whose Line Is It Anyway? They just asked the audience, okay, I want an uh, industrial inf- reform. Uh, I want a, uh, a social security uh, policy. And it was an improvisation because there was no set uh, agenda. This was not the process. The election of the Democrats had not been the project of a working class party. Mm -hmm. It was not like one of the parties in Europe that were organized around uh, uh, labor unions and the working class explicitly around working class uh, uh, goals. And in a country like that, when you have crisis, there is already a, uh, a platform that has been created by this ideologically coherent party and a, then it, a list of demands it, and then it implies that to reality if it gets a chance to rule mm-hmm. because Re- uh, roosevelt represented this uh, bourgeois party that was now being redefined by this new coherent working class uh, uh formation within it it was at every point moving without a charter and without a map mm-hmm. because it, it didn't have a working class imperative it had a imperative associated with the capital uh, interests of, of America. It was only incidentally a working class party because of its connection to the working class in the cities. Mm-hmm. And when those things take over, they have to build from scratch. And so from the top with FDR saying, I'll take what you want. And from the bottom, uh, filtering through uh, the uh, working class to the labor movement, to the bureaucracy, people coming with ideas on what to do. Uh, and so the New Deal is a bunch of people throwing things at the wall. Essentially, all of them are on the idea of redistributing Mm -hmm. through direct application of the federal government as a creator of value as Mm -hmm. in putting money into the economy democratically and not according to the market which is a violation of the highest principles of american democracy Uh, and they did it because people were sick of what they were getting from the deal they had uh, and he put a bunch of men in the room, the smartest guys in all the disciplines of economics, all the Poindexters, all of the Keynesians, the people who understood the contradictions of capitalism that Marx had pointed out, mm-hmm. but believed that a uh, that there was a reformist uh, strand within capitalism that would allow it to maintain stability and not destroy itself. That was basically the Keynesian bargain, is, is or the Keynesian uh, surmise mm-hmm. is that the irresolvable conflict between classes that Marx uh, speaks of while real, can be overwhelmed by uh, adequate uh, institutional intervention. Mm -hmm. Uh, That if you have a a developed 
capitalist economy, it will develop institutions that can guide its output collectively. Uh, and that, this was an attempt to guide output collectively. So first you have the regulatory agenda, Glass-Steagall's uh, prevent, preventing banks from lending money, uh, uh, retail banks from investing money in the stock market, uh, creating the SEC and, and a regulatory agency for uh, stocks. There was no regulation of stocks before uh, Roosevelt. It must be uh, emphasized there. C- uh, creating a, uh, doing wage and price controls um, and creating the first social safety net in the form of social security, uh, a uh, works progress administration desi- designated towards using federal money to p- hire people to do things. Right. Which is the real change here is that you're not hiring people to do things that are required by the function of the state. You're hiring people to do create social goods. Mm-hmm. You're, cre- you're hiring them to do things that create value that are not market relationships or that are mo- not uh, priced in the market, that are public acquisitions and that was uh revolutionary in its uh or that that was a massive change uh in the relationship but it was once again one that the system could contain because we were able to basically is that there was enough there was enough pump to be primed to allow uh the united states to distribute resources more equitably uh and directly intervene in uh, markets prices and wages uh, and this has not the effect of ending the, the the Great Depression, but it stops the fall and creates a sense of upward movement. That's the important thing, is that very soon after the 100 days, there is a felt sense that things are getting better, even though it's difficult, then there is a slow and steady economic uh, increase, but it's still in the context of... A complete of, compl- collapse. Collapse. Yes. And, and so... It is not the absolute condition that validates the New Deal, this new improvisational New Deal. It is the felt sense of progress in the sense that there were things now you could do and there was, there was you could go to somebody and have something happen. You did not have to just hope that the church would help you or something. There was a, an agency you could fill out a format and something would happen. And that sense changed the sense of possibility and changed... Uh, and it brought people uh, to a faith in the system because it was giving them results. It was giving them hope. And that very basic sense of like voting for a president and then immediately them intervening on one's behalf was also like a very radical change in, in people's understanding of their relationship to the federal government, you know? Yeah. So that's the government intervention arm of the New Deal, but equally important is the second arm, the labor arm, uh, because here through a series of acts and agencies, FDR presides kind of improvisationally over a once-in-our-history unification of liberal progressives with labor power. So Matt, let's get the labor story as well. So this is the uh, entry to the historical stage of the American working class into our story. Basically. Mm-hmm. They have been at the gates and they have been agitating and their <laughs> actions have moved things, but not from a position of agents. Yeah, they've mostly been getting shot at by they've agents. Been, they've been being mowed down by Pinkertons and, and, and they've been suffering because they have not been able to bring together a politically uh, coordinated voice that can express itself meaningfully. But the mass misery of the Great Depression, which 
was unprecedented in American history, not for its severity relatively, but for its absolute severity. As in, this is more people in America than have ever been bad, uh, miserable, and more, and they have a greater degree of interconnectivity with each other thanks to a mass media and culture uh, created by the technology, technological innovations of the electric age, and and they are able to articulate their uh, discontent much more uh, coherently through labor movement, uh, through labor unions, through strikes, through uh, the the tactics of a organized working class, and that made them formidable. And and as I said, it directed their uh, politics towards two streams: one, the Democratic Party, which was there to accept the most moderate of them, because most Americans are propagandized. Most working class mm-hmm. people are propagandized; they're not natural communists, and they're going to drift towards the reformist option because they believe in the system. Right. But there are those who don't are drifting over to the Communist Party, which emerged out of the collapse of the socialist movement following World War I as the party adhering to the common turn and the global communist uh, movement headquartered in Moscow. <laughs> uh, and these people following line from an international movement that they felt they were part of were also organizing people and were organizing people in unprecedented numbers for radical uh, 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 politics. Communist organizers were able to take advantage of the misery created by the Great Depression, uh, the mass unemployment and industrial unrest, to organize workers and in industries and in the streets around the clear message that capitalism is, had failed, which they could see all around them. And from black sharecroppers in the South to the garment industry in New York, communists won. Communists were the catalysts for working class militancy. They were the people who were there uh, to coordinate and uh, ex- and uh, communicate to the, the, the group their shared misery. They were the ones who could come to a place of exploitation and say, hey, we, ca- we have a story for why this is happening that was convincing. And that meant <laughs> that they were able to exercise influence in the unorganized working class, but also within labor, the labor movement mm-hmm. and within uh, labor, labor unions. And that led to the... Uh, creation in 1935 of the Congress of Industrial Organizations, which was a split off of the more conservative AFL dominated by radicals and pro-communists who wanted to keep the working class movement pushing in a direction towards fundamental conflict with capitalism Mm -hmm. through adherence to a greater common turn. Like they were communists in in the sense that they saw the the, the, the split coming in 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 the aftermath of World War or they, split, they, they saw the conflict with capital as irresolvable, and they saw the communist model as, they pursued, as the one to pursue. And that meant that their um, influence was significant. But the, what, uh, but the thing that was their greatest ally was the intransigence of capital and the eagerness of government to carry out its bidding. And the New Deal sought to address the concerns of rest of workers while reinforcing the authority of the state rather than undermining it. They were mm-hmm. going to say, look, you guys think that capitalism is that uh, the state is just the same thing as capitalism because it only does capitalism's bidding. We're going to take your side. That's mm-hmm. what the New Deal offered to undermine the radical threat to capitalism posed by working class militancy. They were able to say, "We can get you a better deal. We are on your side." And they took their side by uh, doing things like formalizing the relationship between the government and the labor movement in the form of the Wagner Act and the creation of the National Labor Relations Board, which took the uh, question of workplace democracy 
and made it and brought it to uh, the federal level and gave the working class in the form of their labor unions a equal uh, voice in the deliberations of what the relationship between capital and labor would be. A seat at the table in, the, in a literal sense. There were The people appointed to the LNLRB were politically sympathetic to labor and it meant that labor, labor unions were given legal s- sanction and meant that the old, a lot of the old weapons against labor unions that capital had used, like uh, judges' injunctions and Pinkertons, were illegal. And it meant that uh, the government would be an honest broker of, res- of conflicts between labor and capital. And that had, on one hand, the immediate effect of raising the standard, or raising the expectations of a generation of workers who now felt represented in the political system and were, re- and were rewarded by mm-hmm. a positive uh, rulings that ratified union gains and increased unionization of industries and pushed the big capitalists in, in industries like, uh, like the automotive industry who hated unions, pushed them to the table to make concessions because they were no longer operating uh, with the state on their side. They were actually having to negotiate and they were having to give things up. And so that was an immediate benefit. But in the long term, it served the purpose of capital by undermining the, uh, the vitality uh, of the uh, anti-capitalist heart of the labor movement because from this point on, uh, the labor movement has been co-opted into the government, mm-hmm. and and, and it is, its existence is validated by the government, which means that its ability to see itself as uh, adversarial to the government is compromised. And when the crisis moments come, you see labor bureaucracies bending over backwards to uh, accommodate capital to secure their positions in the, in the, in the structures at the expense of their membership. So that all happening at this moment of crisis, obviously a uh, scene at the time is an immense win for the labor movement. But as we will spool out over the rest of the 20th century, uh, has some rather unintended down, downstream consequences. Yeah, but it was a uh, it was an amazing thing to see the government come in at this Flint at the Flint sit down strike. Mm-hmm. Flint auto workers, instead of just walking out on the job, stayed where they were denied capital access to its capital mm-hmm. like says so you're not going to make anything here you're not going to bring scabs in and instead of bringing in the the national guard as every president had before going FDR, back to that, that bitch rutherford b hayes yep uh fdr said hey man that's your problem that's a <laughs> that's a yp not an mp and that forced the auto industry to the table and that show of good faith uh set the scene for a uh uh, a client relationship between the organized working class of America and the Democratic Party that would persist uh, to some degree till this day, but deeply, deeply uh, wounded, obviously, over time. So this is the first salvo of New Deal policies, mostly enacted by the summer of 1935. And we think one important part of presidential uh, personality to acknowledge here is the particular form of leadership FDR took in this first wave of new of the New Deal. As he took office, everything was failing, and so he tried basically everything. It's one of those instances where a particular kind of man can hit a particular kind of circumstance and let themselves be molded by it rather than falling to the shackles of whatever ideology they came from, something we basically haven't seen since Lincoln. FDR wrote around this time, 
The country needs it, and unless I mistake its temper, the country demands bold, persistent experimentation. It is common sense to take a method and try it. If it fails, admit it frankly and try another. But above all, try something. The key to uh, FDR's leadership is that he was committed to the maintenance of the system, basically, at all costs. He was a bodhisattva of American capitalism. He had no adherences to anything. He was going to take the temperature of the rest of masses and whatever the deal he could strike, he would, which was in contrast to the unorganized bourgeois, the reactionaries who had uh, whipped Hoover into uh, uh, paralysis, insisting on maintaining these precious structures that they thought were <laughs> necessary to the maintenance of their petty power. FDR able to see that, no, their, their existence is predicated on the restabilization of this structure that is being fatally undermined by its inability to, uh, uh, to in take in democratic input. And that the failure to do that was breaking up because the free land was gone for the moment. We had not yet created the post-war utopia. Yeah, so I real, I'm realizing now we haven't done a free real, real estate drop in a long time. Free real estate is gone for now. It's coming back, but right now there isn't any. And so there is this hand choking and things that limit people are internal barriers around ideology and around and around conviction like hoover had but fdr had no such because he wanted to embody the moment and he embodied the moment by letting the collective uh efforts of the of the white working class in the cities of the black working class organized by a philip randolph uh of uh of all common people in america around also their desires filtered through the mechanisms of patronage within the democratic party that told him what was to be done. And so he got people in a room and whatever felt like would make more sense, they did. And then whatever work they kept and whatever they didn't, they didn't. Now, there were limits to this, and we'll talk about that in his second term. Mm -hmm. there, were, there were limits even within him to his inhibition from ego. But he was egoless enough to allow for a greater degree of experimentation than uh, most pre politicians of his generation and certainly his class would have been able to do. And that led to uh, him doing things that were maybe inefficient but were on the whole effective like putting people back to work mm -hmm. had the effect of making people feel like they were there was a bottom and that they could get help and it created infrastructure that was meaningful and important uh and and the regulation of uh industry did restore confidence in the finance system uh they they did do a lot of the things that they wanted to do but you know they were also failures and there were also points where they went ideologically beyond where the system could contain and then they got their fingers snapped but uh but yeah fdr is defined by an expansion that is is then shaped by his interaction with the limits and he gets he hits the limits a few times but it's always uh in the service of of just accepting from below what uh is being demanded and then trying to articulate it The 1936 election is uh, barely worth discussing. Uh, other than that, the Republicans ran a guy from Kansas named Alf. Alf, Matt. You're a fan of Alf. You heard about this guy, Alf? Uh, unless Matt has anything to say about the uh, specter of Huey Long, Charles Coughlin, and the Share Our Wealth movement. Uh, I do. So, as I said, FDR is, is, is improving his way through his first term. Massive expansion mm -hmm. government uh, pr uh, provision of direct redistribution, increase in taxes and regulations, direct employment, but it's it's still not uh communism. 
it's still not full uh, 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 opening of the floodgates. It's being contained by the National Democratic Party and the National Republican Party and the structures of the Constitution. Mm -hmm. So that meant that, well, there was recovery once the New Deal started because the Democrats now had this hegemonic control of levers. They were able to do what they want, but still within congressional or constitutional limits. It wasn't everything it could have done. Mm -hmm. And so there was still misery. So even though FDR was hugely popular, the economy was still objectively bad. uh, And there was still a lot of misery. Now, and people wanted an answer for it. Now, the Republicans were absolutely unable to articulate any alternative to what had just destroyed everything. Yeah, Hoover's still out there being like, no, you can't do that. All they could do is critique. FDR talked about this in his roast speeches. All they could say is, uh, that thing I don't want you to do, you're not doing good enough. Like they had no actual uh, positive program, and so they were they were irrelevant. They were they were stuck to their New England uh, uh, dooryards, like that. They they've got the old people who still remember the Battle of Gettysburg, and, that, and other than that, they were fucked. Uh, but there was still a demand for something other than the New Deal, and it came from the in, and it was pop and it was materialized in the form of. A nascent fascist movement or a uh, popular sentiment, not even a movement. America was pretty resistant to fascism because of the free, free real estate. Real estate. Uh, but <laughs> it was re- the closest thing we had was represented by a uh, radio priest named Charles Coughlin out of Detroit, who uh, was able to articulate a critique of the New Deal from the populist, from the economic left, married to anti-Semitic uh, beliefs about. The society, the classic reactionary yeah. brew that you see in European fascism. Uh, but he was censored by the Catholic Church, and he was never able to build an organization. Fascist movement in America was limited to a few fringe groups like the sh- Silver Shirts of William Dudley Pelly uh, and uh, the remnants of the American First Movement. There wasn't a lot uh, fascist-wise. But uh, in Louisiana, Huey Long was able to raise up the standard of a radical populism that was not explicitly racist and anti-Semitic the way that uh, Coughlin's was. Uh, and uh, he was able to experiment on it in his personal uh, fiefdom, Louisiana. Um, and his radical experiment in wealth redistribution was a play for national power. It was all concentrated towards a challenge of FDR in 36 from the left. Uh, his, his slogan was, every man a king, but no one wears a crown. Uh, and it was, though, basically a Cadillo movement because it was totally disconnected from the working class. Mm-hmm. Louisiana had barely any labor movement to speak of uh, it was it was a land of sharecroppers and, and uh, some decadent urban uh, riverboat gamblers and like uh, huey long even if he did have sincere populist sentiments was basically a machine guy he like operated just like was, an old school was, patronage it was network, a perfect right? example of the patronage network brought to populist ends absent the labor movement right so it was very limited and we never have to really we never got to find out what the, what the <laughs> conflict would have been because before he could run against fdr he got shot probably by his own uh, bodyguards uh, and died in 1935. Uh, so another one of those uh, weird uh, contingent moments. Uh, the, the the Long versus FDR uh, um, general fight. But we never get to see what would have happened then. Otherwise, though the nation was still suffering under the Depression conditions, the flurry of activity in Roosevelt's first term was beginning to uplift the economy, and the 1936 election was one of the biggest blowouts of all time. Roosevelt carried every state besides Maine and Vermont, an electoral landslide of 523 to 8 and 60.8% of the popular vote total, second only to Lyndon Johnson's 1964 popular vote margin. 
The most notable thing about the victory here is the consolidation of the Democratic New Deal coalition, the demographic of voters Democrats would depend on for the remainder of the 20th century. This coalition combined organized labor, religious minorities, urban voters, and crucially now African Americans. After years of neglect from the Republican Party, and now with the offer of material gains from the Democrats, 1936 marks the first election since the Civil War African Americans voted Democrat over Republican, joining the Democratic coalition for the foreseeable future. And this is a byproduct of the Great Migration away from the the uh, one-party dominion of the democratic the white democratic party of the south uh which gave northern uh black voters a, a sense that they could actually choose between the parties mm-hmm. and they got a better deal from the democrats uh while there were uh the, while the new deal was largely uh, uh tilted away from benefiting uh black uh people of any kind uh, due to you know the underlying racist assumptions of the structures being created, uh, that still benefited black people, uh, and they re- rewarded the Democratic Party uh, with their um, their votes, and they were they are going to end up becoming a crucial part of the emergent Democrat coalition that becomes the dominant one, which is an alliance between uh, urban uh, and then later uh, southern. Uh, black democratic voters after the civil rights movement and northern liberals Mm -hmm. Uh, and and they will uh, end up dominating the democratic coalition by the end of fdr's first term the new deal policies were working to restore the economy so naturally he responds by pivoting to austerity and pursuing balancing the budget that fucking budget. We got to keep it balanced. If you don't balance it, then it's going to fall over. Uh, by the beginning of his second term, the U.S. had entered a slight recession, arguably influenced by FDR's work to curb deficits and reduce government spending. Roosevelt responds by launching new spending programs. And hey, what do you know? Line goes back up. Uh, just interesting to note mostly how, uh, despite being known as this champion of government interventions and spending, even FDR is constrained by the economic orthodoxies that he came up under. So if his first term is him just expanding to fill the moment, uh, his second term is him hitting the wall, uh, the boundaries. Yeah. And the first one is internal. It's not even externally imposed. And it is that when I said that he is able to give up his ego to some degree to accept uh, 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 heresy on the economy that his other uh, ruling class elites wouldn't, uh, there are still things that lay deeper than uh, conscious uh, uh, idea. And, and for uh, guys like FDR... The reality of money, I guess I would put it, was is right up there. Mm-hmm. Like these are like like he is trying to defend capitalism, and, and capitalism is one of its base assumptions is the reality of money, that money is something real outside of social convention, and and things like the gold standard, but also balanced budgets are part of that heuristic and understanding of the world, and so FDR believed that deeper than he knew that he believed it, and so did everyone else around him, and so even though. Uh, running deficits had helped the economy expand and had primed the pump in his thirst term. Uh, he, there was an internal check against going too far and, and risking the wrath of the, infl- of, the, of the gods of deficits, even though that is chimerical and a non-existent constraint. One, uh, must, uh, one must kill the deficit hawk in one's own head. You absolutely have to kill the deficit hawk in your head. And so we're going to see multiple checks on how far FDR's uh, usefulness as a historic vessel comes in his second term, but the first big one is not even from outside. It's from within. And of course, what a shock when they cut spending and pivot to austerity, 
the line goes down right and the economy gets worse and then they reverse course and it gets better what a shock who could have thought it <laughs> they had done it to themselves because of their own internal inhibitions Roosevelt's second term also sees the last major pieces of New Deal legislation, including the Fair Labor Standards Act of 1938, which gives us such beloved labor victories as a federal minimum wage, overtime pay for over 40-hour work weeks, and finally, in 1938, an end to child labor. That federal spending increase mentioned just before of $5 billion created over 3 million WPA jobs, creating a huge amount of the infrastructure we've been coasting on ever since. Post offices courthouses bridges libraries national parks goddamn they built ski slopes with the wpa basically everything nice in this stupid country thanks to the wpa uh good administration we should uh, do that again sometime it really is stunning uh, we are so coasting on that infrastructure investment because left to its devices it will not capitalism will not uh will not spend that money it cannot yes and so it has to be coerced into doing it by a political uh, by a political project and that the last one we had in this country with the sufficient will to impress itself on the land that thoroughly was the new deal and uh, it left us with a fucking infrastructure that we have absolutely coasted on ever since an astounding degree of our meaningful physical infrastructure in this country was constructed during that period which just makes you wonder how the hell anyone thinks you're supposed to generate meaningful public goods absent public spending it's like how, you you see it it's, yes, it's pretty. It's it's right there. It's why literally every nice public building we still have is in the same architecture style of, yep. the, of the 1930s. Also in the second term, we get the infamous battle with the courts. Uh, so, Matt, do you want to outline court packing? So we're talking about how uh, FDR is just cruising, filling himself like a hot air balloon with the best, <laughs> uh, uh, the best dreams of the working class as, as the wind at his wings. He's going to collide against his own uh, and his class's preoccupation with money as a real thing, and then he is going to crash into the reality of the court system mm -hmm. and the supreme court which does exist as an alienated center uh of power to check popular will that's what it's there for that's what it even if it wasn't what do. it was designed to do in the book even if they didn't think that's what they were designing it to do given what they created it was going to do it its role was to abrogate responsibility and over the last half of the 19th century the uh, Gilded Age was largely encoded not in law but in political, uh, in uh, judicial opinion. Uh, in the application of the 14th Amendment meant to preserve the rights of uh, former slaves uh, to protect corporate interests. Mm -hmm. And that was all done off of the democratic books by the, by the rules of sober legislators of the law who were, of course, operating out of no material interest <laughs> in the case because they had lifetime appointments. So this is a, a check on progressive movement, and it kicked in, and a lot of the key provisions of the New Deal, passed easily through the legislature by supermajorities of Democrats, uh, were stricken down by the Supreme Court as unconstitutional. Uh, and they were all propelled by a reactionary uh, doctrine uh, founded on the case, uh, the Lochner case, mm -hmm. which defined... Uh, defined rights essentially as as the right to exploit oneself. Yes. Uh, that that the that the uh, compulsions of the market cannot be 
constrained by the state, basically. And that if people uh, will work for 10 hours a day or 12 hours a day or 15 hours a day or 18 hours a day, if they will work for it, then it is their free choice to do so. It is an abrogation of their rights to prevent them from doing it, even though the only reason they're doing it is so that they don't starve. And that was the premise behind the jurisprudence of this reactionary court because you know it's been filled by 19th century presidents, my God. Mm-hmm. And so these guys were shooting down the New Deal. And with his supermajorities in Congress, FDR came up with the idea of adding courts, adding uh, seats to the court so that he could then apply people who will change the way that they interpret these laws. I would say from a democratic perspective, this is totally reasonable. Yes. Because a, a antique conception of the state, which had been defeated democratically, mm-hmm. was still holding veto power over the legislature, even though the people had collectively rejected their uh, jurisprudence. And they get no, because of the Constitution, they get no impact on the resolution of these political questions because they're political questions. They're not legal questions. Uh, I like, even in the way that he tried to do it, the way that he phrased it was basically trying to uh, uh, pass a bill that would allow him to appoint justices for every justice over the age of 70. Yeah, get those old fucks out of there. Which ex- explicitly does what you were just saying, uh, uh, rebukes the the antique view of a court system as compared to the new democratic movements of the country. Yeah. And one way or another, somebody got the message uh, that the tide had turned too much to f- keep the sluice gates that tight. But rather than lose the control, it was, easy, it was better to concede in the moment and maintain the long-term goal of keeping the court there as uh, a, a veto point at a true moment of crisis, which is what they're always imagining. Uh, and so the court, in the middle of this controversy, which did lead to a big uh, public reaction against Roosevelt because people mm-hmm. believe in this constitutional bullshit, even in the face of that, though, the court started ruling in favor of the New Deal. And uh, FDR essentially got what he wanted in that he got freedom from the, legis- uh, from the judicial check to legislate. Uh, and he got it through essentially intimidation. Right. Uh, and, you know, hey, give him credit for, uh, for working for it. But the fact that he wasn't able to get it does show that here is the constraint hitting. Yes. Here is the limitation. Like there, there are institutional barriers to you embodying the will of the, of the working people, whatever the fuck. So after this standoff, the courts become increasingly favorable to Roosevelt's policies. Uh, And it certainly helps that after not getting to appoint his first justice uh, until August 1937, by 1941, seven of the nine justices were Roosevelt appointees. Money real good here. Money real good here. (laughs) Money real good here. And this is where, this is the seed for the liberal fixation on the court. Mm -hmm. Because it's FDR just salting the ground and making it a fundamentally more acclimatized to the New Deal ideological institution that over time it becomes as the as the tides move right it becomes the guarantor of this old uh uh understanding and then it becomes fetishized because all the power has has deserted except for that left residually yeah because i think if i remember correctly four of those seven appointees uh had at least almost 20 years on the court. I think one did like 19 years and yeah. 41 days, and then yeah. three others were on it for over 20, and then, 20 and years. Then, and then the, 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 all the Democrats who got to appoint people after that. Yeah, yeah. And hell, then you got uh, 
arch liberal Warren appointed by fucking Eisenhower. Mm-hmm. However, by 1938, political tides were turning against FDR and Republicans made significant congressional gains, ousting many New Dealer Democrats. Senator Robert Taft, who is, of course, William Howard's son, led a new conservative coalition peeling off several conservative and Southern Democrats and formed an effective block on new domestic progressive legislation for decades to come. So this is the second big reality check to the FDR's pretensions of embodying the moment um, within his own party. Because as we have said, there is a solid reactionary base within the Democratic Party made up of the bourbon white supremacist machine in the South uh, and also, you know, the overriding uh, funding mechanisms of Wall Street that are flowing to both parties. Uh, and so his agenda is being uh, hindered in the court, in uh, not the courts, but in the legislature by these conservative Democrats who are there not because they're de- uh, they have uh, signed on to the New Deal, but because the people who elect them vote for Democrats. No matter what. Yeah, exactly. And so the Democratic Party is there just lo- It's just a shell to hold the local aristocracy basically mm-hmm. and so it is emissaries of that aristocracy who make up the southern democracy now uh but they're there adhered to this progressive uh block and they work the senate is malapportioned enough and there are enough choke points thank you constitution that the southern democrats were able to wield influence and and check them uh fdr's greater ambitions and the uh the ambitions of the other uh, more radical senators because of their uh, intransigence. And so like with the court, FDR decided to try to challenge their power by uh, in unprecedentedly running against incumbent congressmen and senators in the 38 midterms. Mm-hmm. He supported uh, New Deal supporting left-wing challengers to conservative uh, Democratic senators across the country and, and campaigned on behalf of the challengers went around trying to get people to vote against incumbent senators. Uh, this is the president trying to use his power to direct the party, and it failed miserably. Yeah, he got like one in and it got owned in almost every got other. absolutely yeah. owned because there was a real sense where the Democratic Dominion was premised on this alliance with Southern capital that uh, could not be destroyed from the top up uh, because it was too deeply rooted. And uh, and at 38 was a reality check uh, in that respect of once again, here's the limit to even FDR's ability. He will still have to negotiate with this concentrated power because if you were in the South and you liked the New Deal, you voted for the Democrats. If you didn't like the New Deal, you still voted for the Democrats. So the power was negotiated between elites mm-hmm. because there was no practical democratic pressure. It was all uh, thrown away into the, the racial uh, class war. Uh, the caste war that was that substituted for class war in the South. Uh, so even FDR's huge personality could not defeat the local conditions. So this proved a constraint on the New Deal agenda and a boost to the nascent anti-New Deal reaction, which became embodied in the form of Robert Taft, senator from Ohio. So the New Deal was winning workers and farmers to the Democrats all across the country, and eventually it's going to win over finance capital during World War II as it proves itself able to negotiate the crisis uh, and maintain capital stability. Uh, And as isolationism is seen more and more as a threat to the long-term stability of the system. Uh, So this is a pretty big coalition, but 
while it's building this coalition. And it is also alienating medium and small capitalists in the United States uh, who don't have access to Washington, D.C. Salons aren't sophisticated that way, do not have an awareness of their connection to the international project of capitalism and are alienated by uh, that very internationalism and that cosmopolitanism. Uh, And the prospect of an expanded government bureaucracy uh, and the advance of socialist ideas through the popular front, because at this point the communist movement and the socialist movement is broadly aligned in public with the Democrats uh, as part of a popular front against uh, uh, fascism, uh, which these a lot of these small capitalists are very sympathetic to, uh, <laughs> uh, alienated them, and then it alienated any regular American who still really believed in the frontier notions of self-sufficiency that America was based on, which is a lot of fucking people. Not Working class people had been you know, brought into consciousness by the emergence of the labor movement, but not all of them, and people who were working in uh, isolation from other workers, people who are working in, the, in, in, in uh, petty bourgeois industries, uh, people who lived in the, the hinterland in rural areas, uh, they were horrified uh, by this prospect of a globalized uh, government that is equalizing uh, relations between everybody. Uh, and the group, and this group is going to form the nucleus of the modern conservative movement. That's going to spend the next 70 years challenging for control of the upper reaches of the Republican Party on a vision of a nation dominated by small and medium capital, having broken the chains of federal regulation and international finance and, 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 and charting an independent American capitalist course. This is, of course, a contradiction, an impossibility, a fantasy, but they're able to continue believing it because they're in the imperial core, and there's no one there to snap them out of it. Meanwhile, international capital is coalescing around the Democratic Party and expressing its will through there. Uh, But all of that conflict starts here, and Taft embodies this anti-New Deal alienation of small capitalists who depend on the internationalization of capital and and the New Deal and its extension, who depend on it to win the Cold War against communism and the abolition of their condition of power but are not aware of that and reject it because of its implications culturally you said it at the beginning of that speech but uh you know robert taft is the avatar of this i was just thinking to uh two episodes ago when we were talking about his dad uh william howard taft and specifically his wife nelly taft who all she wanted was to be accepted into the high society salons and in a way, Robert Taft is his mother's revenge for never getting be able to do that and, and striking back, uh, you know, uh, Kylo Ren style against the, the elites of the of the salons yep. of, of, ta- of, of D.C. Fuck all y'all. But that was the Republican, uh, the Republican landslide in 1938. But something else happened in 1938. Uh, something in the Sudetenland. Meanwhile, in peace, the Germans enter Sudetenland. The barrier is raised and the cars drive in. How different yeah, that's uh, the, the crisis in, German, in Europe starts to uh, uh, intensify. All domestic concerns get uh, shelved as the, the great questions are what the United States should do as World War beckons. Uh, and the United States watches in largely hesitant and, and uh, an anti-interventionist ground while uh, Poland is invaded in September of 1939. Uh, and the war is declared, 
uh, with France falling to the Nazis in June of 1940. And so, here we are. Adolf Hitler is made Chancellor of Germany in 1933. Germany annexes Austria in March 1938. Then control of the Czech Sudetenland was ceded in September 1938. September 1939, Germany invades Poland, officially beginning the war. By June 1940, France had fallen to Nazi forces. As Europe plunges into war, the U.S. presidential election of 1940 increasingly revolves around foreign affairs, pitting the isolationist factions that had developed after World War I against the growing interventionist factions, ironically including both Roosevelt and the same conservative Republicans who had stymied him domestically. So, lacking any clear, dependable successor, and with the threat of Nazi Germany beginning to totalize all other concerns, Roosevelt becomes an absolute legend and goes for the damn third term. King shit. <laughs> he comes, fucking John Nance Garner's going up, like, I got this thing, and then just rolls in from <laughs> fucking down the ramp and kicks his ass off the fucking podium. So, Roosevelt fairly easily clears the deck and gets the nomination for a third term. His only real challenge is, as Matt just said, his vice president, John Nance Gardner. Matt, do you want to finish the story with Garner and what it represents for the Democratic Party? So... Garner is sort of the last stand within the Democratic Party of the of the of the pure strain American reactionary uh, tradition mm -hmm. that will end up being concentrated in the Demo Republicans, uh, and he is the last real uh, attempt to grab the needle within the Democratic Party for the presidency, uh, and it's because he thinks, hey, uh, I'm two-term VP, uh, but because FDR by that point had become synonymous with the New Deal thanks to mass media, like he wasn't dynamic like TR. But he was uh, absolutely hegemonic in people's understanding of what the New Deal meant, what the project was. Fireside chats, baby. I am not for a return to that definition of liberty under which for many years a free people were being gradually regimented into the service of the privileged few. I prefer, and I am sure you prefer, that broader definition of liberty under which we are moving forward to greater freedom, to greater security for the average man than he has ever known before in the history of America. There were signs in West Virginia, I believe, in the 36th re-election uh, that said, uh, the president knows that your boss is a son of a bitch. And so he, <laughs> uh, with that case and with Garner as a real threat to the thing, he kind of had to run again. And if he'd wanted to, well, hey, here's his chance because, look, there's nobody stopping him. And so he uh, got the nomination. And, of course, he did it because there was a relatively coherent progressive block within the Democrats, a combination of communist sympathizers and uh, liberal eggheads and labor union leaders who uh, were dependable for Roosevelt, supported what he was doing and wanted to see him keep doing it. And to reward them, uh, uh, Henry Wallace becomes uh, VP. And, uh, and this is where we see kind of sunsetting in the Democratic Party, the, the, uh, the you get a barony, you get a barony fantasy of, uh, of Jacksonian and Jeffersonian democracy. Uh, and that migrates completely to the uh, Republican Party now in the next generation as the New Deal redefines our relationship to the state. With the conflict in Europe becoming more and more pressing by the day, Republicans sought an interventionist candidate, which they found in Wendell Wilkie, a businessman who got famous writing newspaper articles about how much the New Deal sucked. 
Uh, Wilkie outmaneuvers Robert Taft for the nomination and goes up against Roosevelt. But seeing as they both took similar positions on foreign policy, Roosevelt gained the advantage by, you know, actually being in power and pursuing the popular policies around intervention, like exchanging U.S. Navy destroyers to the United Kingdom in return for Caribbean bases. Uh, the positions here are a little confusing since initially Wilkie's charge was Roosevelt was not doing enough to prepare for conflict, then eventually changing tact and accusing Roosevelt of clamoring for war with FDR pledging to keep America out of war. But in the end, uh, Roosevelt keeps the advantage and wins his third term with 55% of the popular vote and 449 electoral votes to Wilkie's measly 82. But it's cool. Wilkie goes on to help FDR in supporting the war buildup and eventually gets to be an envoy to Great Britain. Yeah, he was basically, uh, he was essentially controlled opposition. Mm -hmm. uh, Robert Taft recommended, re represented the beating heart of the new Republican Party, uh, dedicated to neutrality on the war because of severe, of, of general sympathy for the fascist side. Mm -hmm. These people were, in their heart, uh, thought that the fascists were the good guys. And so they wanted to support them. And the, the uh, uh, America's extractive and, uh, and land-based uh, fortunes did support the Nazi party, as we all well know by now. Uh, American banks and industry supported uh, Hitler to the hilt. Uh, but at the same time that this yearning is bubbling within the Republican Party, it's commanding heights, still dominated by the capital formations and, f and finance uh, houses and Wall Street fortunes that had dominated it in the 20s, uh, were still there. Uh, and they were, by this point, convinced, as all of, of the Anglosphere was, that the Nazis were getting out of hand and that for the good of the global system, they needed to be confronted. Uh, and that comes again back to America speaking English and our connection to the Anglo uh, economy. Essentially, what happened is, is that in the 19th century, uh, Great Britain and the United States created a globe bestriding capitalist colossus that traded within itself uh, even though it had discrete political uh definitions by dominating through formal colonialism and informal economic domination uh the better part of the globe and then other uh european powers came into conf came into their own to be able to uh assert power against great britain uh and late to that party was uh germany yes and the exploitable territory uh, in the non-governed world where the, the where Westphalian sovereignty was not assumed, which is Latin America and, uh, and Asia and uh, Africa, was taken. And so both Germany and Japan realized that their only way to survive in this contest against the Anglosphere was to recreate America's manifest destiny, domination of the West in the other direction. Mm -hmm. Lebensraum is German for free real estate. Yes. And Japan did the same thing with their Coast Prosperity Spear. But by doing so, they were disrupting the Westphalian system in Europe that was the foundation of, uh, uh, of the stability of the, the capitalist economy. Uh, and in Japan, they fucking literally took over colonies from European powers and said, uh, we'll just take that, violating the peace after World War II. And that meant they had to be confronted. So the, the future of America's partisan conflict is going to come down to this fundamental epistemic, uh, this Kuhnian incommensibility in worlds between a, a global capital-oriented finance and then extractive and, and rooted uh, industrial 
and uh, retail uh, and service economy in the United States, the, the remnant of land-based tenure mm-hmm. that has not yet transcended into uh, the ether. Uh, and that conflict defines politics to this day. And it's, and it's in here that we find the real nascence of it in the form of Wendell Wilkie, international financier, being parachuted in to kick Robert Kraft on the, off the rostrum and then run in a, in a campaign against FDR where the question of intervention is off the table. Right. To, in, to maintain the bipartisan international consensus that something needed to be done about the Nazis. And this is the birth of the alienation between our small bourgeois and the state that culminated in the 2020 election mm-hmm. and, and the, the way, the, where we are now. Despite the main focus of conflict being in Europe, Japan had also emerged as a threat to U.S. interests in the Pacific. And it's Roosevelt's handling of the situation in the Pacific that's going to lead to the events that dissolve the remaining isolationism in the U.S. and actually get us into war. Now, while the United States has a better interest in the outcome in Europe, I mean, we, have, we are part of an Anglo-economic uh, sphere. Uh, we, we, we trade more with England in a large degree than we do with uh, Germany. And even though we, we certainly support German fascism against the communists and even the social democrats, we don't want it to challenge our carefully constructed international order by overturning the table, as it were. So we yes. have a commitment against the Germans. And, of course, there's just the civilizational content, uh, horror at, at, at well-bred American liberals beholding this atavistic uh, uh, savagery. Uh, but in uh, in with the Pacific, you have real hum- American interests at stake because America is one of the colonial contenders for resources in the Pacific, along mm-hmm. with uh, their allies, England and the fucking Dutch and the French. Uh, and so when uh, Japan wants to start a- asserting influence, it's going to be at the expense of these powers. And so FDR, uh, to protect American interests in uh, the Pacific, uh, starts cutting off Japanese access to American oil and steel, which they need because they're not self-sufficient in any of those things. I mean, they're a lot fucking island chain. Mm-hmm. They, 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 they don't have resources, and that's why they're doing what they're doing. The, the, the colonial project is premised on gaining those resources that are, that are uh, denied to them by geography. Uh, and so cutting off their access to those things cuts off their ability to pursue war in China and expansion elsewhere. Uh, they all, uh, the United States also uh, loans China money uh, when Japan invades uh, Indochina. Uh, it sets a stage where uh, conflict is inevitable, and it's a question of who's going to strike first. And it was the Japanese in the form of the Pearl Harbor raid, uh, and one of and the first right wing conspiracy, the fir- the the Ur one. Like, if you want to get rid of you know the anti Masonic and anti Papist stuff of the 19th century and start in the modern era, you start with the Pearl Harbor conspiracy. Uh, does jet fuel uh, melt the USS Arizona? <laughs> and, and the question boils down to, d- did uh, FDR know that there was going to be an attack on Pearl Harbor that they ignored the warnings of? And the uh, answer uh, is, it doesn't really matter because yep. the United States was going to keep pushing until they got a conflict out of it because Japan had to respond. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they did. And it led to uh, finally, an opening of the floodgates of war, which is going to be the actual thing that ignites the American economy, which has been largely dormant these last 15 years. On December 7th, 1941, Japan, like its infamous Axis partners, struck first and declared war afterwards. Costly to our Navy was the loss of war vessels, airplanes, and equipment. But more costly to Japan was the effectiveness of its foul attack 
in immediately unifying America in its determination to fight and win the war thrust upon it and to I win the peace that will follow. That the Congress declare the that, German that since hard the unprovoked and dastardly attack by Japan on Sunday, December 7th, 1941, a state of war has existed between the United States and the Japanese Empire. After the attack on the morning of December 7th, 1941, Japan formally declared war on the U.S. Congress almost unanimously issued a declaration of war in Japan on December 8th. Germany and Italy declared war on the U.S. on December 11th. And on the same day, the U.S. returned the declaration. The U.S. has officially entered the global conflict of World War II. Now, like our other wars, we're not going to go into too much detail here. We're not a war podcast. Go buy a History Channel VHS box set or whatever you want. Uh, You probably know the basic outline anyway. Uh, Allied invasion of North Africa and then Sicily. Soviets stopping the Nazi eastern expansion through tremendous sacrifices of lives. Italian campaign, Battle of Midway, the island hopping campaigns of the Pacific, D-Day, two-fronted circlement of Germany, race to Berlin, Hitler puts a bullet in his brain, April 30th, 1945, United States atomic attack on Japan, August 6th and 9th. 1945 Finn. I'm hoping I'm not being too flippant there, but again, just trying to give broad outlines. Matt, what is the takeaway of World War II? So World War II is uh, the primal scene for uh, modern America. I honestly do believe that everyone born after 1945 is a boomer. Yes. (laughs) The only difference is is that over time, precarity increases and technological sophistication also increases. That's it. Otherwise, it is the same experience of being born at the lap of God, <laughs> the center of the world created by this conflagration, which had left all the great powers of the capitalist world prostrate, destroyed, uh, and the world divided into two camps, one dominated by the one remaining capitalist nation, the United States, and the other by the, the Soviet Union, which had been absolutely decimated and, mass- and, and, and destroyed by the horrors of the war. Meanwhile, the United States only benefited, suffered no territorial infringement, and gave themselves an excuse, basically, a psychic excuse to spend the money that they needed to spend to fucking make the country uh, economically viable again. And they did it in the form of a massive uh, mobilization that won the war, saved democracy, uh, saved the Jewish race, maybe after the, the horror of the Holocaust was discovered and provided an understanding for America's place in the world that would echo through every generation since and define all of us in a way that's deeper than our ability to, to even uh, uh, articulate. Like it is, it's foundational DNA stuff for people born in this generation. So you're seeing this being born, but while this uh, understanding of America's place is being born, the actual sinews of the state that can carry out that destiny are also being formed because like the Civil War uh, was an inflection point for building of state capacity in the United States. Mm-hmm. This World War II was, again, another inflection point towards another uh, leap in degree of, uh, of state capacity right. because winning the war created an amazingly massive bureaucratic state uh, that was orders of magnitude more powerful than the one after the Civil War because of the intervening years of technological and social advancement and population growth. Now you're talking about a government of a size never before imagined with 
bureaucracy and technology never before imagined the goddamn bomb that can destroy a city by itself i mean in dc the war had been planned by a bunch of people in temporary trailers <laughs> because there was no capacity to hold all those people but those jobs didn't go away like we transformed the war economy of the civil war towards the uh settlement of the west and the extension of the transcontinental railroad we set the post-war american economy towards the goal of military uh, uh mobilization undeclared war a military economy based on bombs uh milit- and expansion and military ex- ex- expansion a military economy not we're not going to build stuff we're not going to build housing like the british we're going to build bombs and that is so we can administer a new global order because the Westphalian competitive structure that had dominated Western capitalism since the 17th century was rendered inviolable by the, by the end of World War II because it had destroyed Europe. Right. Twice. There, and, and it had destroyed Japan, mm-hmm. which meant that there was no competing centers of power beyond the, uh, the uh, proscribed Soviets w- who could assert power against America. And so America got to assert its will. It got to create a post-war order, and that was able to do it through this new administrative state. And what it provided for people was material prosperity and a heroic vision of, of control of destiny in our understanding of the country that we then carried with us until it became, and as it continues to become, untenable to believe. On Matt's point about coming out as the hegemon and the new global order the United States presides over, we will have a bonus episode focusing more on all of those issues. Uh, World War II is obviously a cataclysmic event, hugely tragic and destructive loss of life, and we haven't even touched on the Holocaust. Well, Matt briefly touched on it. Uh, ob- obviously a world historic tragedy. But again, we're staying focused on the U.S. presidential political economy here, so with that, let us turn back a bit to the 1944 election. <laughs> So by 1944, the course of the war was positive for the United States, and wartime production had the economy humming. Roosevelt faced little opposition in gaining the nomination for a fourth term. Hey, why not? Yeah, why not? This thing is on wheels at this point. <laughs> Literally. Ah, yes. However, it was becoming generally known that the president's health was declining, which put a greater weight on the Veep slot. Uh, we've already touched on this a few times, so we can kind of run through this, but... Uh, you know, Henry Wallace for Harry Truman one final time. So by by 44, FDR is a visible is a physically spent force. His yes. time on Earth is, is not long, which means that the question of his vice presidency is very important to important people. And so uh, by 44, the realities of building this war economy and the suppression of labor unrest that happened because of the no strike pledge that basically the entire working class signed over the duration of the war as part of their popular front meant that there was. Uh, little uh, fermentation at the grassroots uh, uh, on these issues. And that meant that the uh, momentum at the convention was with the reactionaries to to create a new line that couldn't be crossed, to mm-hmm. create a new place for FDR and his cronies to bump their face against. And it was the question of the vice presidency. And uh, there was insufficient uh, energy to re- resist that demand. And so they swapped in the glad hander from Independence, Missouri, the the corn pones, son of the soil, Harry Truman for uh, our our precious boy, Henry Wallace. Hit the bricks, pal. <laughs> 
The Republicans put up moderate New York Governor Thomas Dewey. Uh, They campaigned back and forth with Dewey accusing Roosevelt of corruption and being in league with the communists. But with war victories mounting by the day, Roosevelt's a juggernaut and wins with 53% of the popular vote and 432 electoral votes to Dewey's 99. And then, just three months into his fourth term, while sitting for that portrait in Warm Springs, Georgia, Franklin Delano Roosevelt dies. R.I.P., to an absolute legend. Another figure like Lincoln, whose greatness in our estimation is consecrated by their early death. They didn't have to make the really tough decisions about how to accommodate a populist political movement to the demands of this new empire that had been burst out of the fighting of the war. Instead, he keeled over at a key moment and was replaced with a more reactionary president. So FDR, like Lincoln, was a figure who presides over a violent transformation of the American economy and as such embodies all the contradictions being expressed by that transformation. An aristocrat motivated by the same belief in noblesse oblige and the power of government as the other Roosevelt, tempered by humility of disability. Not the mind being the change, but the director of the energies that propels those changes. Uh, It wasn't FDR's will that made the New Deal. It was his uh, ability to channel energies coming from below him. Uh, It was he was able to be the conduit of a popular assertion of economic power, as well as the aspirations of minorities, but also the reactions of power concentrations and all the currents that were managed by the White House. Uh, by this newly empowered federal government were, of course, going to also be expressed in the racism and and racial class structures of the day. Uh, It was a new deal that reinscribed racial segregation in housing. It interned Japanese people, but it also radically expanded the role of government to intervene uh, with regular people and save them from the crushing jaws of the capitalist boom and bust cycle. Uh, It was the promise that we could master Uh, the world and not be subject to the whims of the market. Uh, And those contradictions are inherent to a project that sought first and foremost to rescue capitalism rather than to overcome it. Harry S. Truman. The S is just an initial because both his grandfathers had names starting with S. Weird. Uh, was born May 8th, 1884 in Lamar, Missouri. Harry's father was a farmer of decent means, and Harry was educated in the Presbyterian Church, then in conventional schools, eventually attending a Kansas City business school for a year, studying bookkeeping and typing. He worked a few low-level clerical jobs, including as a page at the 1900 Democratic Convention in Kansas City, but returned to his family farm until World War I. Truman served as an artillery captain in Europe, but probably the most consequential event of his military service was meeting the nephew of Kansas City Democratic boss Tom Pendergast. Truman also gained some leadership and directing skills in the war, things he had not encountered as a farmer and clerical assistant. Truman returned to Kansas City and opened a haberdashery, a business that would eventually fail and cause him debt difficulties until the mid-1930s but also got into politics, winning a position as a county court judge with the aid of the Pendergast political machine. Truman worked his way up various judgeships, eventually getting placed as director for Federal Reemployment Program as a reward to the Pendergast machine for their support of FDR in 1932. In 1934, Pendergast slotted in Truman for Democratic candidate for U.S. Senate after his top four other choices declined to run, so Pendergast's fifth choice for Senate candidate. Damn, thanks anyway. Yeah. Truman won and won again in 1940, 
though it was a little more tenuous at that time as Pendergast had gone to prison for tax invasion at that point. <laughs> Awkward. Truman entered the Senate with a reputation as a creature of machine politics. He was known as the Senator from Pendergast, but he carved a small space for himself as a supporter of New Deal politics and an opponent of Wall Street. In his second term, he gained national notices as a crusader against military waste and corruption, uh, getting those, those um, you know, bureaucrats on the radio yep. to yell at them as we talked about Listen at the beginning. Listen there, buddy. His investigation to the military supported by the Roosevelt administration, looking to appear above board with its massive wartime spending. His efficient management of his committees and investigations went a long way to overcoming his reputation as a Kansas City machine man. And so he gets the veep spot, the quote, second Missouri compromise, some called it. Uh, FDR kicks it 82 days into his presidency, and Truman's informed by Eleanor Roosevelt that he is now president. After asking Eleanor if there was anything he could do for her at, his, at that time, uh, she replied to Truman, quote, is there anything we can do for you? For you are the one who is in trouble now. Ha. Truman would say to reporters about getting the job, quote, <laughs> I don't know if you fellas ever had a load of hay fall on you. So you can fantasize that uh, Henry Wallace would have been able to stand up to the forces that were going to come together to try to assert the post-war capitalist dominion. And you can imagine him not being up to the task and, and, and failing at, at the mission and, and leading to the same Cold War we got anyway. And you can imagine an enfeebled FDR not dying and, and presiding over the same thing, even though, honestly, FDR did seem to have a vision for a non-colonial, non-neocolonial foreign policy and a collaborationist approach to the Soviet Union that was the next step. It was the next goddamn step. If you want to take politics seriously as a as a real dialectical uh, ascertainment of the popular will, the next step in a peaceful transfer of class power would have been some sort of post-war uh, buyout between the Soviet Union and the United States that would have accelerated a global chain of uh, uh, of reforms towards socialism the dream of kautsky and bernstein basically uh and of course the likelihood of that happening is very low because of the power of capital at this moment it is in ascendancy uh but the one thing we know for sure is that with greenhorn ass harry truman <laughs> in the in the catbird seat at the key moment that we were absolutely uh fixed in in a death battle uh with <laughs> The Soviet bear on behalf of 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 capitalism fully conceived as a international project of neo-imperial dominion uh and and good old harry truman there uh with no mandate with no uh understanding of any of the issues <laughs> with no confidence of himself fully at the whim of every technocrat who was uh loyal to this new imperial idea and had no democratic commitments whatsoever uh, he was putty in their hands. Mm -hmm. So Truman, characterized as testy, even bitter, quick to anger, an overworker, and overly reliant on old friends and confidants rather than skilled or experienced advisors, gets to the insanely delicate work of establishing a post-war world order. Now, I mentioned before, we're going to have a whole bonus episode going in-depth about the post-World War II American-led world order, and specifically the development of the national security state that was initiated under Truman. But let's look at the outlines here. So the United States is sort of uh, challenged with the question of how to proceed in the aftermath of World War II. Europe is in shambles. The Soviet Union uh, is, is battered but triumphant as well. Uh, and the United States is able now to assert unilaterally a new course of action 
uh, for how the global economy and pol- political system will be organized uh, to to break up the the Westphalian state competitive framework of national bourgeois competing for resources uh, in a capitalist system and break and turn that into a decentralized na- uh, international capital flow, which is the end state of capitalism. It must mm-hmm. create an international bourgeois and international institutions because it is the all consumer. Uh, and so that, that is an inexorable part of polit- of, of capitalism. Uh, and it is pulling the non-elected part of this machine that's been created in one direction, because mm-hmm. as the war is being fought, this new infrastructure of think tanks and bureaucracies and, and uh, uh, corporate boards are creating concentrations of coordinated action that are unaccountable, that are outside of democratic regimes, that are bureaucratic in form, and that those are now going to be asserting their their conviction of the best interests of capitalism in a global conflict with communism is what they see because they're the, they see the whole board basically from their position having fought this war. And so they impose upon the democratic and then the Republican party, this, this deal that freezes the new deal at its extent, neuters the working class that generates the independence of it, dominates the post-colonial third world and makes them into pliant, uh, states that uh, supply cheaply to the first world through a dominion of massive military spending in the form of our post-war military industrial complex and through the United States dollar, Mm -hmm. which at the Bretton Woods Treaty negotiations is determined to be the world reserve currency. Now, when you do that, you give the country that has that currency veto power essentially over the world economy. And uh, John Maynard Keynes, who was at Bretton Woods said, "Hey, maybe that's fucked up. <laughs> maybe we should, uh, you know, get a a uh, a neutral basket of goods or something to stand in for that value in those international exchanges." But of course, this was not being negotiated between equals. This was being dictated by a, a victor, and so it was dictated as such. Uh, and uh, so uh, uh, Truman carries out as just this this sock puppet the will of this new national security state, this new global imperative that had to confront the Soviet Union in Europe, uh, subvert communism in the uh, post-colonial world, uh, defend colonialism where, where necessary, and essentially uh, 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 wage economic warfare on the post-colonial subject on behalf of uh, the United States, but also uh, reconstructed Europe, which will have money pumped into it to mm-hmm. bring it back up to defend against uh, the the Soviets. Meanwhile, the Soviets, who were looking to not raise conflict after World War II, uh, are ignored at every step, so that uh, uh, conflict can be uh, the defining characteristic of the relationship. Uh, the Cold War, as it were, and this dominion, an American dollar dominating the globe, tied to an American military economy. Where all of that economic productivity that was unleashed by the war is now not directed towards social ends of housing or uh, national health care service uh, or democratizing the economy. It's directed towards the building of uh, the military industrial complex, which can uh, assert American power across the globe in this battle for resources, which is a battle against the communist East, but also the indigenous nationalist movements of these countries that are no longer uh, empire, uh, no longer colonies. Uh, and 
this sets terms for confrontation with the Soviets, even though Stalin, it gets my uh, suggestion, honestly, is absolutely looking to stand down and wants to deescalate because of the horrible trauma the war had endured. He wanted to save his ass. Mm-hmm. And so uh, he was willing to negotiate on many, many points, and he sacrificed the Greek communists to uh, solidify the Iron Curtain. But there were a bunch of other negotiating points that the U.S. refused to, d- to budge on and essentially pointed to the nukes that we had just dropped on Japan to say, hey, what, what are you guys doing? What are you guys doing? Which is, at the end of the day, why we nuke Japan. Yes. Hey, this is, this is, this, this is the, uh, the terms we dictate. And Stalin and the Soviets, they backed down and they accepted the regime and they accepted their national. They, without intervention, were going to then do, be doomed because they couldn't compete. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, in a system dominated by the dollar. And part of this is now putting those dollars to work, recapitalizing European industry. And that'll have effects later on that undermine the American political uh, uh, structure. But uh, at, the, at the time, they're necessary. So Japan and, and, and Europe get this huge infusion of money to rebuild their industrial economies. Meanwhile, the third world, Latin America and, and Africa and such, try to build domestic industries and are subverted from doing so so that they will uh, continue to provide just a source of, of passive uh, resources at a low price from the United States. Uh, and what carries this out economically is, is the Bretton Woods uh, deal. Uh, that, that U.S. dollar is still pegged to gold at this point. Uh, and, but it is the U.S. dollar that determines the exchanges uh, within the system. Uh, the Marshall Plan happens, uh, and all of this is necessitating the creation of a national security state, uh, a bureaucracy out of government uh, authority that can analyze and then act outside of democratic control, which is necessary to move a machine of this massive size, where the domestic considerations of, of the empire are not even Existent. Nobody thinks that they're in an empire. All these things are done off book. And so these new formations become unaccountable because they're funded by the government but are not accountable to government. And Truman signs off on all of them. Uh, And uh, what we see in the 50s is the emergence of a state that is building an infrastructure of surveillance, control, and power extension uh, generated by the economic activity of building nukes and fighter bombers and tanks uh, that is able to dominate the global trade network and uh, bring all surplus basically to the center to be consumed uh, and also to be have the, um, the consumption throughout the thing generated at this point in the United States, uh, which it can afford to at this point, but things change over time. So you've got a war economy going undeclared over the course of the 50s and 60s, and then an, uh, a global um, covert art war against communism in the form of local control of land, uh, and all of it overseen by uh, Truman, who signs it all off because there's no one else in the room uh, at this point. conflict in establishing this new American-led world order was a crisis in the Korean Peninsula. In June 1950, North Korean forces led by Kim Il-sung moved into South Korea, quickly overwhelming and pushing back the South Korean forces. 
This would be an early test of Truman's policy of communist containment, especially if the U.S. had been unable to prevent the communist victory under Mao Zedong in the Chinese Civil War the previous year. Truman pushes the newly formed UN to intervene, which they do, under the command of U.S. General Douglas MacArthur. Truman commits U.S. troops to this endeavor without congressional authorization, and after some initial successes, the war settles into a brutal stalemate along the 38th parallel by 1951. Uh, Again, we're not going to go into great detail about the Korean War here, uh, but Matt, can you outline how the political conflict around this war is a good example of, of Truman's uh, you know, settling into th- this style of leadership. Uh, this is a good example. The Korean War is a good, a good example of how, while Truman is ceding democratic oversight over so much of this new state, becoming theoretically powerful over this whole uh, structure that uh, is is being having its real decisions taking taking place away from uh, the public eye. Um, he is still pursuing a Cold War strategy with the United States, which means having his CIA, having his army, having his military going out and pushing against the limits of communist expansion. Mm-hmm. Uh, containment, as they called it. Right. And part of containment meant finding weak points. And that meant that even though uh, Truman, so close after World War II, uh, and, and trying to pursue a real domestic agenda... Uh, did not want a fucking war in Korea, in Asia, that was going to be uh, consume his presidency. Uh, but the imperatives of pursuing a, uh, a, a containment of the Soviet Union uh, meant that the nascent communist uh, regime in North Korea had to be subverted. And so there was a uh, concerted effort on the part of the uh, puppet dictatorship in South Korea to provoke something from the North, even though Truman had no desire for a war in Korea, but it all led to a quote-unquote, invasion of South Korea that brought the U.S. into this massive conflict uh, that saw him in direct conflict with uh, MacArthur, his general, who who wanted to pursue uh, the war into China and and have a final confrontation with communism. Uh, And Truman had to resist this. uh, And in that conflict, you see, once again, the, the dueling the dueling libidos at the core of uh, the, the conflict between international and local bourgeois in America that is now spinning us towards oblivion. Both liberals and conservatives understood after World War II that a Cold War, a war, a conflict had to be fought with the Soviet Union on behalf of capitalism. Mm-hmm. They both shared that conviction. Truman and MacArthur shared that conviction. But the party of the Democrats by this point, after all of the uh, cr- after all of the international cooperation that went into World War II, they, the, these these connections had been made. They were deep. There was a real uh, network that that understood the capitalist project as an international one, and it commanded the Democratic Party because the Democratic Party had been in uncontested control of the government the entire time. Right. And so these people have an understanding that to fight the Soviets means international alliances. It means the United Nations. It means the Bretton Woods. Mm-hmm. It means Marshall Plan. It means standing up our former enemies. It means socializing at home to tamp down racial and uh, and class resentment. These are the projects that are incumbent on someone who will manage capitalism. But for the smallholders who are going to end up detaching from the, uh, the consensus and form their uh, petty bourgeois insurgency, uh, they don't perceive it that way. They see international capital as a threat to them. And it is in the long mm-hmm. term. Mm-hmm. They will be proletarianized or bought out by it. Uh, 
and if they're at the end of the hose, they're not getting bought out. And so they feel precarious. And so they also hate communism and want to fight it. But to them, if fighting it without violence and without a war means doing all the things the Democrats want to do, then it is better to fight the war. Mm-hmm. It is better to go to see the final conflict and see who is stronger because I believe we would be stronger because I believe in us. And that is MacArthur's challenge to Truman, uh, which leads to a fear of a coup, uh-huh. uh, a, 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 a rumors in Washington that MacArthur is going to march and, and, and do a pronunciamento and declare himself president. So after a emotional speech before Congress that made people start talking about a coup, uh, MacArthur essentially lost his nerve and started crying and, <laughs> and quit. Uh, very, very shades of Charles Boulanger, if anyone knows anything about French history. Uh, but so MacArthur's challenge to Truman ends up presaging like the prefigurative element of this new uh, uh, reactionary resistance to uh, the, the new liberal order that is trying to overwhelm the globe if these hillbillies will just let them fucking do it. <laughs> uh, and so Truman eventually has to fire uh, MacArthur. Uh, it's an incredibly unpopular move. They have to, all of the, the deaths trying to liberate the Korean Peninsula go, uh, go vain as they settle on a, uh, and not even a treaty, but a... Uh, a uh, ceasefire? Yeah, a ceasefire along the, fi- the parallel. Uh, it's going, uh, going great to this day. Yeah, just very unsatisfying. Uh, and it's very unpopular. He's, uh, uh, Truman is intensely unpopular. He's got some of the lowest approval ratings ever uh, recorded uh, when he uh, leaves power. And it's clearly not something he would have chosen to do, but is essentially forced upon him by the underlying logic of the Cold War. So that's Truman's foreign outlook. Uh, and kind of wraps up World War II and its aftermath abroad. Uh, I know that a big thing to talk about the Truman administration is the um, decision to drop the two bombs on Japan. I don't know if we really want to touch on it here. You did mention that the decision was mostly, uh, in your opinion or your take, on uh, big-dicking communist Russia uh, at the time. I don't know if we really want to open this, but I know it's such a big... uh, point of contention of truman's legacy it feels uh you know it is remiss for us not it, to mention it, it seems wild to take to think that someone had that kind of decision in their hands yes. someone could decide to do something to unleash an unprecedented horror on the world uh and i think that our difficulty to conceive it is really in the aftermath of the actual explosion mm-hmm. i feel like nobody really knew what they were dealing with certainly not fucking uh, corn pone ass Harry S. Truman. They who, just thought big bomb. Who literally didn't know about the thing. The Soviets knew about the bombs before yeah, Truman right, knew about yes. them. Just knew big bomb. Yes. Well, why wouldn't you want to drop a big bomb, especially if you're trying to let the Soviets know what's going on? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think that considering the fact that it was going to be a big hill to climb to invade uh, mainland Japan, uh, and there was this refusal to accept the uh, conditional surrender terms that the Japanese were offering at that point. Mm-hmm. But also the real expedient to all these questions is the fucking, the communists have invaded Manchuria. They're, they're moving towards challenging for territory. And in that decision matrix, you got to pull the trigger, baby. I don't know who else. I think everybody, maybe FDR doesn't pull the trigger, but once again, it's because of his, the power that he has absorbed through being this 
public figure for this many years, the, the, the confidence he has and the power that he can draw on if mm-hmm. he wants to make a decision, which Truman didn't have any of. Right. But because Truman was carrying out this Cold War conflict orthodoxy of we're not going to make a deal with the Soviets, we're going to fucking go to the mattresses, then setting off a bomb becomes the, the only option. But what about Truman's home front? Whither the New Deal, this massive reshaping of American economy, forged from the disaster of depression, shaped and hardened in the dynamo of a war economy, and now quenched in the prosperous, peaceful aftermath? And I hope that metallurgy metaphor works there. I've been watching a lot of Forged in Fire recently. Matt, we think the best way to look at Truman's economic positions is through the response to the post-war labor unrest. Care to walk us through that? So the class conflict uh, in America throughout the uh, World War II was was repressed by a no-strike pledge taken pretty much universally in American industries for uh, workers to not strike against conditions because there was a war on. Because they and they're a lot, and this was true among the more business-oriented, patriotic unions, and it was true among the communist-dominated unions who were following the common turn line that the United States needed to fight alongside the Soviet Union to fucking save it. Mm-hmm. Uh, either way, there was a uh, incentive in the labor movement to put off striking and and wait until the war ended, and then reassert the class war that had been put off by the the war against Germany and and uh, Japan. Which does seem kind of uh, insane, you know, in retrospect, being like, yeah, we'll just put the class war on hold for four years, well, five years. Well, you know, it's like when you, the, the, the math makes sense when you consider the existential threat of the, mm-hmm. of the Nazis to everything that they held dear. And the fact that the Soviets were a live option. Yes. And that many of them were Soviet sympathizers. Yes. And many of them were Soviet agents. <laughs> uh, they really thought that this was an international uh, alliance between the working class of the uh, West in the form of the United States Democratic Party and its and the CIO and and, and its top leaders uh, and the global proletariat led by the Soviet Union. The, mm-hmm. Between the two of them, they could actually move this wheel on this motherfucker, uh, and and that spirit permeated the grassroots of the unions. And so, when the war ended, the demands burst forth and to assert uh, working class power in this post war world and press forward. Their case, there's a massive, unprecedented strike uh, wave across the United States. Uh, just the uh, the 46 steel strike uh, is by itself the largest strike in American history, with 800,000 workers going off of uh, the lines. And this is part of a huge years-long explosion of labor militancy, restrained labor militancy. And Truman, in his position as... Uh, executor of the new global state, the new global capitalist order, uh, viewed this wave of strikes the same way that capitalism did, as a threat to that order. And so while there was an attempt to intervene in the steel strike uh, on behalf of the workers by nationalizing the uh, steel industry, part of Truman's push to make the New Deal into a social democracy that was Mm -hmm. always being undermined by the imperatives of the Cold War. Uh, And so in that case, even there, the Supreme Court slapped his hands and said, you can't nationalize the steel industry. <laughs> uh, but otherwise, Truman viewed the strike wave as a nuisance and as a, as a threat. Uh, and as a result, popular non-working class resentment to many of the uh, 
bureaucratic inefficiencies of the New Deal, uh, and also the, the the militancy of workers in jobs they didn't have, mm-hmm. and therefore they saw as competing with them, turned to the Republicans, and there was a huge Republican wave in uh, 1948. And out of that Congress, we see birth the statutorial death notice of the body of the working class or of the body of the uh of the socialist movement in america the taft hartley act Mm -hmm. Uh, and truman tried to veto it but his veto was overridden it was Mm -hmm. it was an absolute uh, priority of the republicans and it was head the the uh passage of it was headquartered by robert motherfucking taft what did the taft hartley act do the taft hartley act banned sympathy strikes uh and put a vast number of constraints on union organizing, mm-hmm. making it harder to organize workers in uh, workplaces. Take the engine of that had grown the labor movement to make it such an influential force within the Democratic Party, its engine, and essentially removing the engine. Uh, and from this point on, the uh, the motive force at the base of the uh, labor movement is has been extinguished. Mm-hmm. Uh, and at the same time, this is happening. Uh, Truman's Cold War and its attendant anti-communist hysteria is causing a red scare mm-hmm. that leads to the uh, the purging of communists from high positions in the Democratic Party and in the labor movement, specifically in the radical CIO, which split from the AFL in 1935 uh, and was filled with fucking communists. <laughs> uh, and in so doing, the spirit of the working class movement was gone because Gone were all the people who were motivated by a revolutionary consciousness. The only people left were the hacks mm-hmm. who were in it for some greater benefits for the members. And that reshaped the American labor movement and made it more amenable to the Fortis compromise that was going to be put upon it, which is free real estate in the form of subsidized uh, 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 mortgages for the whiter of you. <laughs> uh, and therefore, um, the life of a country squire. Sure, you got to work for a living. Sure, you cannot sustain yourself on the land anymore. Uh, you don't know what the fuck to do. You got a fucking yard, acre and a half with a yard. You can't. You're not growing enough turnips to keep you yourself alive. You can sustain yourself on the land, but you get a pretend land in the form of a lawn in front exactly. of you. Exactly. You can recreate a sense of uh, yeoman autonomy in a, in a miniature sense. And considering that you get to also watch TV and drive around in a car and eat all the food you want and all the dairy base sends you to college. And go to college. What? And and in that deal, who's not taking that deal? Cons- because the alternative has been removed, mm-hmm. because the soul has been extinguished, because all that's left is the uh, unaccumulated consumer desires of these people who have been stripped now of class consciousness by uh, by excess. They have been bought. It's a crude cliche to say, but it's very true that they were bought off. Uh, and Truman presided over this decapitation and uh, uh, vivisection of the American working class. And it turns out that that Taft-Hart, that, that uh, National Labor Relations Board that was created to codify uh, the labor movement, now after Taft-Hartley can be used to constrain labor organizing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and without the, mo- the ability to organically grow through structure or the drive at the top from activists committed to a vision at the t- uh, there is no forward momentum and it will, the working class formation within the democratic party will sort of float through space until it's obliterated in the seventies and eighties, but we will get to the seventies and eighties. Um, just one quote that I liked about, uh, Truman's who, you know, did a few things, uh, to support new deal policies. But I think that this sums up, 
his kind of attitude towards it. Uh, a quote from an undelivered speech about the railroad, about the strike wave of 46 through 48, quote, uh, every single one of the strikers and their demagogue leaders have been living in luxury. Let's put transportation and production back to work. Hang a few traitors and make our own country safe for democracy. Literally calling for, uh, um, you know, lynching of labor uh, leaders in there in a speech that he was going to make to the public. But one of his advisors said, hey, buddy, let's tone that down a little bit. So even though uh, we see Truman here presiding over the, um, as Matt just said, the buying off of the labor movement, um, his, some of his extensive dedication to the New Deal does show it as the new baseline here, that there's only so far in this post-war world that it can be rolled back. And we see this in campaign for his own term in 1948. Among his New Deal tradition policies, Truman advocated for overturning Taft-Hartley, uh, to his credit, and the establishment of a national health insurance scheme. Uh, do you have anything on the the national health insurance scheme, Matt? So this is the the uh, tragedy at the heart of Truman, is that to the extent that he did have a political conscience, which he did, it was to fulfill the uh, the promise of the of the New Deal uh, in creating a social democracy, which is mm-hmm. sort of the end state, like the Keynesian social democracy is the is the imagined like end state, like Heigl's Prussia uh, for <laughs> liberalism. Uh, and he thought that he was going to get there by doing things like desegregating the military uh, and creating, finally, like in Europe, a national health service. Uh, but it was uh, the imperatives of empire that he had to obey above all that meant that he uh, could only see his agenda destroyed because the forces that would have pushed it forward, the motive forces that would have pushed it forward in the labor movement were being destroyed mm-hmm. under his auspices both formal, both uh, publicly and, and clandestinely. Uh, and so he saw himself unable to pursue an agenda uh, as he was building the machine of his own ruin. And as well, to his credit, Truman appears to have had a genuine moral revulsion to the racial inequalities baked into the New Deal. As Matt just referenced, Truman moved to racially integrate the armed forces and federal agencies with Executive Orders 9980 and 9981. He pushed his version of the New Deal, called the Fair Deal, in Congress, which included several measures to create a more integrated New Deal, including support for voting rights and fair employment practices. Eventually passed after the election of 1948, the Housing Act of 1949 provided for a massive urban renewal and public housing project. Now, of course, the legacy of post-war public housing is, um, I would say, mixed to be maximally generous. Uh, but Truman was pushing for it out of genuine concern for these issues. And, you know, you read Truman's statements and he, he talks about seeing, uh, you know, GIs coming back, black GIs coming back from World War II and being denied all the benefits of the new order and feeling generally genuinely sickened by it. But again, it goes to show that he can only move so much, even if he has a genuine desire for it. The, the Brits could afford because they weren't going to be the, the, the arsenal of this thing. They could afford to build social housing after world war ii in america uh it had to be privatized mm-hmm. to prop to prop up the uh the hyper state that was being built that was gen- being fueled by just defense spending and for truman these were risky positions in the election of 1948 truman would face opposition from both wings of his party the conservative wing would rebel and split into the pro-states rights dixiecrat fashion led by Strom Thurmond, who would run as a third-party candidate in 48, winning four southern states. 
The progressive wing would split into the progressive party, led by the boy Henry Wallace. Uh, the seeming collapse of the Democrats without FDR to keep them together leads Truman basically getting counted out of getting actually elected. And his surprise victory is where we get the infamous uh, Dewey defeats Truman Chicago Daily paper. Though Truman had garnered a substantial popular vote margin, the election came down to fewer than 30,000 votes spread across Illinois, Ohio, and California, each of which Truman carried by less than 1%. So by 52... He he wins the surprise election, uh, and it's all oh that's fun. And then he spends this next term just getting eating shit, very much like Cleveland. He gets back in there and he just eats shit for the rest of the term because yes. this is when the Korean War, War happens. happens. He fires MacArthur. This yeah. is the steel strike. This is all the Michigash. Mm-hmm. So that time he is co- trying to ch- chart a course towards the creation of a American social democracy, the the ends the the understood end state of. The New Deal, what it what it should resolve itself to, which is federal provision of fun, of necessities, basically mm-hmm. in a market context. That's the dream that everybody has been saying. All the good liberals have been chasing since the fucking uh, the Puritans landed, and it's within sight. And they're going to try to make it happen, but they're undone by the fact that the engine for this machine is a global capitalist order that is being written into existence by a new imperial management machinery mm-hmm. that is independent of uh, the public will and that will sacrifice democracy and will sacrifice uh, uh, the best interests of any number of people uh, for uh, this greater good that will eventually uh, annihilate even the vestiges of American democratic democratic input into policy. So in order to stand up capitalism everywhere and to confront the Soviet Union and to compete for resources in the third world where uh, colonialism was dissolving, uh, an unaccountable national security state and a war economy were required. Right. There needed to be a system for intervening both overtly and covertly in uh, foreign affairs in order to preserve the, uh, the supply chain. Uh, and in so doing, in creating this, necessitated the creation of a cultural atmosphere of anti-communist hysteria, which was used by high officials in Truman's administration before Eisenhower mm-hmm. to uh, create public hysteria uh, or to uh, create a public campaign against communist influence in things like labor, mm-hmm. labor unions that led to the, pur- the mass purge of communists from the labor movement during this period. It was a democratic uh, endeavor to do that, but it was necessary to, uh, to flood the chamber and pacify the, the working class, and, and that was the carrot, and the stick was the post-war uh, consumer order of federal housing loans and the GI Bill. Uh, and that cost him any kind of working class uh, uh, support that could push towards a goal. Uh, by, and by neutering the uh, labor movement of its most dedicated and effective leaders, uh, and by exposing, showing a hostility to the strike wave and replacing labor power with the Fortis Compromise and free real, estate. free real estate, it reduced the labor militancy and the coherence of the labor movement in the face of a bourgeois reaction from Republicans that were just starting to come into, v- into view in the form of Robert Taft and Douglas MacArthur, uh, which meant that the New Deal would lose momentum and be now codified mm-hmm. into a bipartisan uh, consensus that will be predicated upon the arrestment of momentum towards social democracy 
Uh, and all of that will be uh, uh, brought into being under the distant paternal gaze of perhaps the handsomest general of all. So we will start next week with the election of 1952. The ascension of, yes, another handsome general. Here to oversee the moment of American apogee. Where we take this new deal and weld it to a new American dream of perfect, endless consumption. All built on a new war fought not through arms, but through markets. And all we have to do is make sure that we don't develop any kind of pesky uh, military-industrial complex. Hell of Presidents is produced by me, Chris Wade, with our co-editor, Nick Quaz. Our theme music is by Nick Diamonds. Additional music for this episode by John Ahrens, a.k.a. Repelican, whose music you can find at repelican.bandcamp.com. And by at Bizarro Jesse. You can find his music at xhappydaggerx.bandcamp.com. Our episode art is, as always, by Branson Reese. Join us next week when we reveal the conclusive, undeniable truth about the Kennedy assassination.